So for those of you who are not familiar with me, uh, this is my third time in three months back. I'm Father Dan Malaco. I am stationed over in Hampton. I was just ordained in June, so I've been a priest, what, six months by now? Um, so if you're ever on the peninsula, stop on by. But anyway, I've uh, been working with the youth group here once a month, and so Father was nice enough to also let me say the Mass uh, before working with the youth group. But before my life as a priest, I was a paramedic uh, in this city. So I, when you called 911, there was a chance I was the one showing up to your door. And uh, I remember a call that I had, um, oh gosh, it's got to be eight or nine years ago by now. Uh, and it was a call for chest pains. We get those a lot. So my partner and I in the ambulance raced to the house. And uh, before you ever go into the house, you have to get everything you need. Otherwise, you're going to run into the patient and be like, that's really bad. Hold on, I'll be right back. So we have to take our time to get the equipment and get everything on the stretcher and then get the stretcher up to the front door and then get the stretcher in the front door. If there's stairs, that's harder. You know, so it takes us a minute to get there. But we are going as fast as we can, I guarantee it. Well, this particular call, uh, the patient's family member was on the front porch flagging us down, as many people do in their attempt to, to try and be helpful. And when she saw us stop to get our equipment, she got quite angry at us and was yelling at us from the porch that we were taking our time and were not doing everything we could for her loved one who was quote-unquote dying inside. Spoilers, he didn't die, but he was having a significant cardiac event. So my partner and I are, are hearing this, we're trying to get everything, and we get up to the house, and she continues to just yell at us that, you know, we're so bad at our jobs, and oh, she wants us to be fired. Too bad, so sad, we were volunteers, you can't fire us. But anyway, uh, we were in her house quickly and began to treat her loved one. But what, what was she really yelling at us? She was really yelling, please save my loved one. Like she wasn't mad at us, she didn't care that we took 0.5 seconds to grab a bag and put it on the stretcher. She was really trying to tell us, this is so important to me, please come and rescue my loved one, come and save them. And as first responders, we get that a lot. You know, we don't like to hear it, but we do get the abuse of family members who are just really trying to help. But what they're really saying is, please, this is the worst day of my life. I've had to call the emergency number, and I've never had to do that before. I don't know how to react. Please save whoever is in trouble, me or my loved one. And that's the cry of the church this day. We heard in the psalm, and I wish it was more sad, but it was proclaimed so beautifully. The psalm says, Lord, come and save us. Like, we don't call for rescue unless there's actually something that needs to be saved. But the universal church prays today the same psalm around the world. And it proclaims, Lord, come and save us. We need to be saved. So by the time that John the Baptist comes on the scene, the people of Israel are waiting to be saved for approximately 1,800 years, right? Uh, and here's the thing about rescue. When you want to be rescued, it cannot come quick enough. If we get to your house in the ambulance in four seconds, you want us there in three. And it's understandable. You want that rescue to happen as soon as possible. And so by the time that Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of the other prophets have gone through, and now Jesus is here, and John the Baptist is proclaiming him, 
the Israelites have gotten kind of a little tired in waiting, right? Like, they're like, yes, we know the Messiah is coming. When is that happening again? Because we've been oppressed by everyone. So they're kind of a little lackadaisical about knowing that it's coming. They're like, yeah, it's, it's coming, I guess. But they have predictions. They have prophecy. They know what it will look like when the Messiah comes. And that's what we hear in the first reading today. Isaiah is saying, listen, you guys, this is what you look for. This is what you need to know. When the Messiah comes, here's what's going to happen. All right, where are your blind people? We won't have them anymore because they will see. Where are your lame? We won't have them anymore because they will be leaping for joy. Where are your deaf? We don't know because all of our people can hear now. This is the prophecy that Isaiah says. And so he says, prepare, because when this starts happening, you will know that the Messiah is coming. So we go to the gospel. John the Baptist, let's be very clear about this. John the Baptist knows who Jesus is. There is no question in his mind. He doesn't send the disciples to go see Jesus and ask this question because he's like, well, I thought he was the son of God when I saw the heavens open up and a voice from heaven proclaim, behold my son in whom I am very well pleased. But maybe I was making that up. No, he's very clear about who Jesus is. But he knows that you can only tell someone something for so long before they need to experience it for themselves before they fully believe it or buy into it. So John sends his disciples to Jesus, well, because John's in prison, he can't really go with them, and he says, go find out for yourself if this is the one that I've been telling you about. I know it is, but I need you to go find out. So he goes and he says, ask him this question. And rather than Jesus being a showboat and being like, oh my gosh, you guys finally figured it out. Yes, it's me, ta-da. Here I am, the Messiah you've been waiting for. He answers them again with prophecy, right? He quotes the same thing from Isaiah. And he says, I don't know. You tell me if I'm the one you're looking for. But let's judge it by the fruits of my ministry so far. Let's see, the blind are regaining their sight. The deaf are regaining their hearing. The lame are walking. The lepers are cleansed. Those who have demons are having them driven out. You tell me if you think I am the one that you've been waiting for. And so some of us, we also need rescue, right? Like there's, there's a lot of us who live in these circumstances, in these situations, in these families, in these relationships, and we need to be rescued. And we know that God has the power to do this. Like, we know that he could snap his fingers and everything could be made better. But for some reason, he's not doing it. And so we're sitting here questioning, like the Israelites, when are we going to be saved? When is it our turn? Like, we see everyone else around us and their, their lives seem to be pretty great. But when is it our turn? And so we turn to the second reading. And it says, my brothers and sisters, be patient. But it doesn't only tell us to be patient. It says, be patient and have your hearts grow steadfast. Have your hearts grow firm, it actually says. It's exhorting us to the virtue of fortitude. The other name for fortitude is long-suffering. That's a virtue. It's telling us, yes, be patient. Because you know that your salvation is coming. Because you know that God will rescue you. Because you know that the problems of your life now will not always be the problems of your life. Be patient and be steadfast. And it's very easy to say that 
when you're not in the midst of suffering. And let me tell you something. Um, I hear so many heartbreaking scenarios and problems in the confessional. I hear about terrible marriages, bad family dynamics, sons and daughters that are breaking their parents' hearts. It is so good that there is a partition between me and the penitent because some days I cannot help but cry when I listen to how your heart is pouring out to the Lord, begging for rescue, and all I can do is sit there and listen. It kills me sometimes. But I know that the Lord will not leave you there. I know that the Lord will rescue you as long as we are patient and we grow steadfast. And we let our hearts grow firm. Because even if nothing in this life gets better, the first reading tells us, those who the Lord redeems enter Zion, or heaven, whenever you hear Zion, replace it with the word heaven. They will enter Zion singing joyfully for eternity. And all sorrow will flee. This life may only be pain to you. I don't know. And if it is, I'm so sorry, and I hate that you go through that. But know that it doesn't always have to be that way. If we hold on to hope, if we hold on to the promises of the Lord, we know that one day we will sing forever in heaven joyfully, where there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more tears, there will be nothing but eternal happiness for the life that you traded for sadness. There are nine days left until Christmas. Nine days. We say that we have four weeks of Advent, but really the last week is three, week, or three days. If you are in a position right now that your life is terrible, that your circumstances are horrible, that you wake up every day and it feels like a burden, I would really ask that you try. Try and pray a Divine Mercy Chaplet. Because I think the repetition of saying, Jesus, I trust in you, and, and appealing to his mercy helps us to grow steadfast in heart. It helps us to be emboldened to, yes, this is really hard for me right now. But I think I can go one more day. I think I can go one more hour, even. And if you are in a position that your life is wonderful, and it's going to go from good to better to best at Christmas, awesome. Praise God. Pray for those people who that is not the case. Offer a divine mercy chaplet for those people who even thinking about praying kills them. Because you are the body of Christ, right? Like we don't suffer alone. When John was in prison, Jesus wasn't like, well, it stinks to be him. No, his heart was breaking for John. But he also knew like, yes, this is what the father is calling him to. That is not my path. But that doesn't mean I have to be heartless to him. I suffer with him. And when one of us suffers, the rest of the body suffers. You cannot stub your toe without your brain recognizing it and sending pain to the rest of your body. This is the way the church functions. When one of us suffers, all of us should suffer. We may not physically suffer, but we can offer whatever sufferings we have for those people who suffer greater for us. It's called redemptive suffering. It's what Paul says, we build up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. He didn't mean there was anything lacking on the suffering that Jesus did on the cross. He means we, as the body of Christ, are able to build up what is lacking in us 
through our sufferings. So, if your life is bad, pray. And if your life is good, pray for those whose life is bad. We have nine days until Christmas, and I hope that you spend every single one of these nine days rejoicing. Rejoicing until Christmas comes, the feast of the incarnation comes, and we get a better sense of the second coming and the joy that will be when Christ comes again.